40 years ago in a groundbreaking piece of marine conservation that captured the imagination of the world, the Mary Rose was raised from the seabed. The Mary Rose was a warship that had been commissioned by King Henry VIII in 1511. Her name reflected his devotion to the Virgin Mary and, of course, to his Tudor Rose. Two years later, she was described as the noblest ship of sail that I true be in Christendom. She was intended for war, and in 1513 she got it. But she also served Henry in years of peace, being new maid in the 1530s. But in the 1540s, relations with the French turned bellicose again. In retaliation for the English capture of Boulogne in 1544, in July 1545, the French sailed into the Solent, the strait between the Isle of Wight and mainland England. It was the greatest foreign threat of Henry VIII's reign. And it was during the encounter between the two fleets, the English on the one hand and the French on the other, that Henry's warship, the Mary Rose, sank on the 19th of July after 34 years of active service. Henry watched his ship sink from South Sea Common powerless to stop the tragedy. When she went down, she had perhaps up to 500 men on board. Because of anti-boarding nets across the top of the ship, because they were wearing heavy chainmail jerkins, because many of them were not on board deck but below, most of the men drowned with the ship. Only around 34 were rescued. In the 16th century, the tops of the ship's masts remained visible at low tide. And for 437 years, the Mary Rose lay on the seabed and was forgotten. Amazingly, however, the silt of the Solent preserved the timbers of her starboard side. In the 19th century, she was rediscovered and, in 1982, was heroically raised from the sea. Today, you can see her in a state-of-the-art museum in Portsmouth. And not only does she survive, but along with her survived the remains of the crew who drowned and over 19,000 objects, many of them things that don't survive anywhere else, that tell us about the details of Tudor life. First of all, let's talk about how and why she sank, because it's a bit of a mystery. Was she manoeuvring suddenly? Was she hit by a gust of wind or by a shot? Was she overloaded with soldiers and guns? To help me understand this, I've called on Dr Dominic Fontana, formerly Senior Lecturer in Geography at the University of Portsmouth and now a Fellow of the Society of Antiquaries and the Royal Geographical Society. Dr Fontana talks to me about an amazing image known as the Cowdery Engraving, probably painted between 1545 and 1548 it records the Battle of the Solent and shows the Mary Rose's sinking in revealing detail. It's a scene that shows us everything that was going on during the battle in immense detail and set within a correct geography. It's got Henry VIII here, right at the centre of the action, just by South Sea Castle. We've got the town of Portsmouth over here on the right-hand side. 
Over on the far side, we've got the Gosport shoreline, which marks the western side of the entrance to Portsmouth Harbour, a very narrow entrance, very easily defendable. And at the top of the picture, we've got the Isle of Wight, with on the left-hand side, the mass of the French fleet, probably around about 230 French ships, containing about 30,000 French soldiers to be landed in England to defeat Henry. And here in the middle of the Solent area, we've got the defending English fleet with the Great Harry as the flagship of the English fleet and the mass of English vessels behind it. It looks like a lot, but there were actually only about 60 English ships there. So they were outnumbered three to one near enough in terms of ships but they were also outnumbered near enough three to one in terms of troops as well, because they only had about 12,000 English troops at Portsmouth to oppose the landing of 30,000 Frenchmen. In other words, 1545 was a year of immense threat as far as the English were concerned. It was huge threat. Henry's kingdom really hung by a thread. They'd never had to try and oppose such a large army before. Equipped, trained, paid, complete with supporting ships. And Henry at the time was at a severe disadvantage because the year before this happened, he'd invaded France and taken the town of Boulogne. So the majority of Henry's proper trained troops were over in France and not here to defend the homeland, not here to defend Henry's crown. Now we're going to be looking at this engraving as a historical document. So the first question I have to ask you is how historically reliable, how historically accurate is it? When I first saw this as an image about 40 years ago, I thought it's just got to be a picture that tells some stories but it probably isn't that accurate. But as I started to research into it and found other maps and documents and written accounts, it becomes possible to triangulate the information that we see in the Cowdray picture of the sinking of the Mary Rose with other historical maps. And by great good fortune, Portsmouth was the first city or town in England to be mapped to scale. And we have the most amazing map from 1545 that shows the town in immense detail. And you're able to look at the map and cross-reference it with the buildings to see where all the major fortifications were and even down to the level of the small elements of what makes the town work. Now, it shows us at the top this rich, detailed scene of the moment when the Mary Rose sank. So let's talk a bit about this battle and what we can learn from this picture and what we know of the battle itself. In the centre of the image is the sinking of the Mary Rose. Here she is with the mainmast and the foremast still up above the sea level, which is where they would have ended up when the ship hit the bottom. They're canted over towards the left-hand side, which again is exactly as they would have appeared when the Mary Rose sank onto her starboard side, 
hitting the mud at an angle and just leaving the mast tops up above the water and you've got two fighting tops and in the Mary Rose Museum at Portsmouth we've got one of those fighting tops on display and again it's another of those things that adds to this story whether we have the actual objects that are shown in the picture it's so exciting and around the Mary Rose you can see that there's a number of drowned sailors just floating in the water. And again, I think that really is important to remind us that this was an enormous tragedy to the people of Portsmouth and to Henry VIII's Navy and certainly to the members of the Mary Rose's crew because perhaps as many as 500 of them were drowned when the ship sank. But in terms of the battle, they were a collateral loss. And although Henry probably was a little upset about the loss of some of his sailors, he was certainly far more upset about the loss of the ship and the guns that it carried. So there's the Mary Rose in the centre, surrounded by the drowned sailors in the water and one or two still swimming away, awaiting rescue from some of the small boats that are honing in on the sinking site. But over here, we've got a group of four galleys. Now, that was part of the tactics of the battle. The French had gone to a great deal of trouble to bring about 25 Mediterranean galleys all the way round from Venice and from Genoa, right through the Mediterranean, out through the Straits of Gibraltar, right up along the coast of Portugal, and we know they called in at Lisbon on their way up to join the French fleet at Le Havre. They picked up a pilot at Lisbon who was to navigate them across the Bay of Biscay and up the Western Channel to join the rest of the French fleet. So Francois and his court had put an enormous amount of work and money into gathering ships and crews from all over the area that they controlled and they'd even gone to the trouble of getting support from the Pope and the Pope had sent one of his galleys. So a galley join. ship is a ship that is rowed as opposed to sailed? Exactly that and the Mediterranean galleys were very successful as warships in the Mediterranean where you have little in the way of current but you can row them very quickly powered by prisoners of war and convicts. So you've essentially got galley slaves providing the motive power. But they could go and manoeuvre independently of the wind. They could also manoeuvre relatively independently of the currents. And the currents in the Solent are really quite significant. I think the French really knew how important this could be when they were planning to bring an invasion fleet over. So it was a lot of effort and a huge amount of expense to bring these vessels here, but it was the first element of their offensive capability that they deployed. So all the French admirals sent in about five galleys in to attack the English ships, and he could do that with impunity because the English were becalmed because it was a hot, still, sunny day with a high pressure weather system over the south of England. So the big English ships, which relied on big sails in order to be able to catch the wind so that they could move, were just stuck. They were just stuck there at Spithead. 
This is really interesting because I know one of the theories about why the Mary Rose sank is because there was a sudden yes. gust of wind. So I want to ask you about no. that in a second. Yeah. But galleys can therefore come away from the French fleet, row up towards the English fleet, and presumably they've got cannon on board in order to attack. Yes, that's one of the major elements about the Mediterranean galleys is that they were fitted generally with either two, four or five very large bronze guns mounted directly in the prow. So right in the bow, they could fire directly forward at any ship that they were attacking. So the tactic is to row as fast as you can towards the vessel that you want to attack get as close as you can without being shot back at, loose off your forward-facing armament, try and hit the target ship, and then as smartly as possible to turn around 180 degrees and row away as fast as the slaves could make the vessel go. Now, if you can do that in a sequence, heading directly towards the bows of the English ships, you've got a really good chance of being able to hit the English ships at the vanguard of the English fleet whilst they're held at anchor. Especially if the tide is rushing in towards the English ships, thereby holding them with their bows facing directly towards the attacking galley. The Solent produces very predictable and very strong tidal currents. So it's possible to actually calculate in detail the time of the tide and the time of all of the currents in the Solent on that Sunday the 19th of July 1545. So not only do we see the battlefield in terms of its geography, but we can understand quite a lot about the dynamics of the way that the water would move and how that in turn would condition the possibilities that the attacking French would have, and equally, the defending English ships. So right at the front of the English fleet, you've got the Great Harry, and presumably the Mary Rose was part of that vanguard. Absolutely. In fact, what the Cowdray picture shows us is the position where the Mary Rose sank at the end of her final passage. We know that exact point because that's where we excavated her from the seabed. It is exactly as it is shown on the Cowdray. To get there, she would have had to have made a passage looping from somewhere off the north coast of the Isle of Wight, round in front of the Great Harry, and directly up towards Portsmouth. Now, that would have given her the advantage of being able to bring her starboard side broadside guns to bear on any attacking French galleys. So they'd be able to fire a large volley of big bronze and iron guns directly at the attacking French. Now, earlier in the day, we know they didn't do this. The French written account of the battle suggests that the English were completely becalmed in the morning. And we know that in the morning, the tide would have been running from the east to the west, holding those English ships with their bows facing towards the attacking French galleys. Now, that gives the English a huge disadvantage 
because they have no means of firing guns directly forward. They can fire them slightly off to one side or the other, but it's very difficult to bring those guns to bear on fast, manoeuvrable galleys that are coming in, making an attack, turning around and running away again. And again, this is one of the fantastic things in the Cowdray picture, because we can actually see what's going on. If we look at the Great Harry here, the English flagship, where John Dudley, Lord Lyle, was Admiral, he was on board, they've actually got only one of the guns shown as firing from the main gun deck, and that's the foremost of the main gun deck guns. And you can see, if you look at it very carefully, that it's canted as far forward as you can possibly get it. And all the other gun ports along the side of the Great Harry are closed. And that also gives us a clue about what may have happened to the Mary Rose, because we know that from the archaeological excavations, the gun ports on the Mary Rose on the starboard side were not closed. They were open. Okay, so what evidence do we have here then of why she sank? Is it to do with those gun ports? Is it to do with that gust of wind? It what? will definitely be to do with the gun ports being open, yes, because that would be part of the final process. To my mind, it's all interlinked with a whole series of minor problems that had been building up over the day that finally led to the Mary Rose sinking. It's quite a complicated process. Like many sea disasters, it's a whole range of small incidents that come together in an unfortunate mix that ends up producing the final disastrous result. And I think with the Mary Rose, this was very much the case. We do have several documentary accounts of the sinking that give us elements. The only really contemporaneous written account from an eyewitness is from Francois van der Delft to Charles V. He was the imperial ambassador, he'd been newly appointed, and certainly was a man who was trying to give his emperor a full picture of what had happened. He was definitely there, in fact he's shown in the Cowdray picture, and he's being shown here a group of troops. So Francois van der Delft's account says that he talked to a Fleming among the crew of the Mary Rose who had survived, so probably one of only about 35 men who survived the sinking, who described the event as being blown over by a big gust of wind. So as she sank or capsized to the starboard side, what this person had seen was the sails billowing up. Now, that could be the case. It is occasionally possible in the Solent that you'll get a sudden big gust of wind. But given that the accounts of the weather were of describing a high-pressure summer system with a little wind, particularly in the morning, that seems unlikely. What tends to happen in the Solent in the summer is that about three o'clock in the afternoon, the sea breeze blows up. And that would have been just enough to be able to get the Mary Rose underway 
somewhere towards the middle end of the afternoon. So the likelihood is that the Mary Rose set off probably about 4.30, 5 o'clock in the afternoon in order to make a final passage across the Solent so that she could bring her starboard side broadside guns to bear on the attacking French. And I think we've got to think about why would that be? If we look back at what we've seen about the disposition of the French fleet and the disposition of the English fleet and the weather conditions and the tidal regime on the day, we can see that the French would have had much the best of it for a period of about five hours, from about seven o'clock in the morning up till about midday. And during that time, they could easily send those Mediterranean galleys in to attack the vanguard of the English ships, and they could do so more than once. They'd be able to probably make a little return trip about once an hour during that period. And the English were sitting ducks? Basically, yes. The thing is that there's a very good detailed written account from the French perspective by a chap called Martin Dubellet, who was a nobleman, well-connected, he was a soldier, and his account was written later in his life so not contemporaneously, and it was published in the 1580. So it's not absolutely contemporaneous, but we do know that he relatively soon after the events of 1545. So the likelihood is that it was written in manuscript and then was brought to publication later. Now his account says that in the morning, favored by the weather, our, meaning the French, galleys had the advantage to be able to keep up a hot cannonade against the enemy, the English. So he's telling us what's going on. And we can see that is quite likely to be the case in terms of what the Cowdray picture shows us and in terms of the geography and the dynamics of the tidal flows in the Solent. In fact, the galleys that are shown coming into the Solent and attacking the English ships are actually located at a place that today, and has been known as for certainly four centuries, no man's land. It's no man's land sand, off Ride East Sands. And if you look at the picture, it is perfectly no man's land between the English fleet and the French fleet. Was that the moment that it was named? Ah, that makes sense. There, the French galleys, because they were very shallow draft, would be able to sit quite happily to regroup, rearm for the galley slaves to have a breather before going back in to the attack because it's shallow. So again, the English were stuck. The French had a defendable position out at no man's land on the sands. One thing we do know, though, from Dubellet's account, is that the French had made some landings on the eastern end of the Isle of Wight. They'd actually sent a group of troops to go and attack Nettleston Fort at Seaview, where the English had some guns that were firing into the flank of the advanced party of galleys. And Dubellet records that the French troops attacked the fort, drove off the Ellen White militia from 
that fort, chased them south into a wood, which is Priory Wood, on the eastern end of the island, where they murdered them. So there was a lot of detailed and really quite nasty fighting going on. And all of these things get reported in the various accounts and documents. So by tying them all together and seeing how they all fit as a narrative to a narrative image of the cadre mm -hmm. picture, mm -hmm. it gives us tremendous insight. So from what you've been saying, by late afternoon, there is some breeze. The Mary Rose can move, and at this point she positions herself to be able to shoot back at the galleys who've been having this whale of a time attacking the English. And what goes wrong? What happens next? The thing is that we know that the Mary Rose was sailing almost directly northwards. She'd actually got into a position which if you were a real mariner, you would not want to be. Because she had to make a turn, either to port to the left-hand side or starboard to the right-hand side. And she had to do it very soon. Because if she carried on in the direction she was sailing from the point where she sank, she only had 600 yards before she'd have run aground. Now, that's cutting things extraordinarily fine for a square rig sailing ship. To turn one with that sort of precision is nigh on impossible. Also that the current would have been pushing her out towards the French ships at the time and the last thing that the Mary Rose would have wanted was to be drifting out towards the French fleet where she would be massively outnumbered and outgunned. So why do you think she was there? Well, that's the intriguing thing. She'd certainly made her attacking move on the French galleys. She'd fired the guns from her starboard side. We know that at least one of them was discharged, another was in the process of being reloaded. So the archaeological evidence to support that she had fired her guns from the starboard side she would have fired them at something. The likelihood is the target was some of the galleys. Now, I think we've got to think about the psychology here a bit. The commander on board Mary Rose was Sir George Carew. He was an aristocrat. His previous job had been as captain of one of the forts at Calais. He was a land soldier, not a mariner. He'd been promoted to the post of Vice Admiral of the Fleet just the day before by Henry VIII at dinner. So he'd joined the Mary Rose immediately after the dinner oh my goodness, to, how be, unlucky. to be in command of a ship that he didn't know, a crew that he didn't know, and as a land soldier, somebody who would be rather more au fait with artillery and aggression, and who would have known that Henry's kingdom was hanging by a thread, and undoubtedly would have known that Henry was watching him. If, as I suspect, the Mary Rose had been under incoming fire for some hours earlier in the day, possibly five hours, the French would have, at the very least, 
got some shots somewhere close to the Mary Rose. Now, the indignity of that, taking incoming fire from an attacking French galley, would have been quite something for a man like Sir George Carew to bear. And yet, he's powerless to do anything about it at that point because his ship can't move. He can't turn it, he can't make it go after the French, he's got all these guns, and he can't point them in the right direction. So he's really got a serious problem. And I think that it's quite possible that the French actually managed to put at least a hole, or maybe two, into the hull of the Mary Rose some hours before she set off on her final voyage across the Solent to the north. Now, it doesn't take very much of a hole to get quite a lot of water into the hull of a ship. And in fact, you could easily get about 18 inches of water into the bottom of the Mary Rose's hull over a period of several hours from just one shot hole. The ship would have had two pumps that could have pumped the water out. We know from the archaeological excavation of the Mary Rose that the aft pump, that's the one at the rear of the ship, wasn't there. There was infrastructure for it, but no pump. There was a similar one, bigger, alongside the main mast. And that could have coped with about one shot hole coming into the hull. The only problem was that the pump wasn't functioning when the Mary Rose sank. It was laid out in pieces on the Orlop deck, which is where the pump was excavated from. So she had no working pump? It looks as though the pump failed and they were trying to repair it. Now, on the whole, that wouldn't matter, provided you didn't want to do anything. If you stay stopped with a ship, the rate of inflow of water is reasonably controllable. You can stop a fair bit of it simply by bunging up holes and things like that. However, if you get underway and you start making a move through the water with your ship, that ingress of water massively increases as the pressure and the turbulence causes more water to come in. So I think it's quite likely that the Mary Rose had a hole hours before she sank, that she'd shipped some water, not disastrous amount, possibly 18 inches in the bottom of the hull, but it's enough to upset the balance of the ship. When her gung-ho new Vice Admiral sets her in motion. Exactly. So we start off from a position just to the south of the Great Harry and we make a passage northwards. All the time this would have been increasing the inflow of water and slightly destabilising the ship. I think the crew would have known this. They would be used to their ship. They'd know how she behaved. They'd know how far she'd roll and how long she'd hold before coming back to right herself. And it was a calm day, so the amount of movement wouldn't have been enormous. But someone like Sir George Carew would have been completely unaware of that because as far as he was concerned, in command on the weather deck of the ship sailing, everything's fine. 
So do you think it wasn't necessary for there to be another French shot in that late part of the afternoon for her to go down? No. Just the one earlier would have done it? Absolutely. And one of the things about this is that we haven't got an archaeological hole in the side of the hull. If we did, it would make it very easy to understand, but we don't. All we can do is think about this as being a sequence of circumstantial possibilities. Now, if this possibility is right, would that mean there would need to be a hole in the side of the ship that we have here at the museum, or would it be on the bit that is no, on the bed it, of the sea? it could be anywhere, could be anywhere on the ship's hull. And one of the problems that we've got is that we've got the majority of the starboard side, but we don't have very much of the bow structure, nor do we have very much of the stern structure, and we have nothing of the port side, although quite likely there is a good deal of structure still down at the bottom of the Solent, which would be so exciting to excavate and examine. I agree. Everyone thinks with the Mary Rose, it was brought up, it's all done. But as you say, there's a lot more potentially, we think, down there that could be conserved and examined. Exactly. There's more evidence yet to come. Hi there, I'm Don Wildman, the host of the brand new podcast, American History Hit. Join me twice a week as I explore the past to help us understand the United States today. You'll hear how codebreakers uncovered secret Japanese plans for the Battle of Midway. Visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with the British. See Walt Disney accuse his former colleagues of being communists and uncover the hidden history that lies beneath Central Park. From pre-colonial America to independence, Slavery to civil rights, the gold rush to the space race. I'll be speaking to leading experts to delve into America's past. New episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. So join me on American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. This is After Dark, myths, misdeeds and the paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday and we'll take a look at the darker side of history, from haunted pubs to Houdini to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, myths, misdeeds and the paranormal wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. So there's potentially more to find on the bottom of the seabed. But first of all, we need to understand what we've already got. Clearly, what we need to know is what light marine archaeology can shine on why the ship sank. And I know just the person to talk to. Dr Alexandra Hildred was part of the team who excavated Henry's warship 40 years ago. And she's now head of research and curator of Ordnance and Human Remains at the Mary Rose Trust. 
The archaeology tells us that gunport lids on both sides of the ship were open. So that's a big thing because we know the, roughly the stability of the ship. We have enough of the hull form to be able to do that. We know the height of the lower sills above the waterline. So the idea that it's only 12 inches above the waterline is not the case. We would discount the fact that the gunports were too low, but we do know the gunport lids were open. And what we've done with stability trials using the hull form, as we knew it several years ago within trial tanks at Southampton, is once she goes over 19 degrees, if the gunport lids are open, water will enter through there. Then if a ship goes to 19 degrees, the water can come in. So whatever happened, it got her to that 19 degrees. Once you're there, the water is coming in. Now, the question then is what got to that situation. And if you look at the various scenarios, you've got the thing that they're overweighted with guns. Well, the guns that we recovered match pretty closely, or you can see if you got both sides of the ship, would match the inventory. The inventory is not that different for the Mary Rose and for her sister ship and for the other ones. So if the Mary Rose was compromised, all of them were compromised. So I think we can exclude that. There's no evidence for extra guns being on board. There's no evidence for extra men being on board because you look at the spaces and one of the things that we hope to do with the University of Portsmouth, that their new creative technologies laboratory is to get people in various spaces and say, how many more could you have that are fighting men in this area? So you can find out within the space of the Mary Rose and the objects that we've got are fixed objects, how many more people could you cram in anywhere? And I think we'll exclude the fact that you can have enough to sink it by putting extra men on because you need a certain amount of space to work the ship. So that too many men is something that we can test, but we don't think you could have fit much more than 500 men on board the ship, which is what Cook's thing was for. We've got 415 listed on the inventories, but that's without the officers and their retinue. So 500 is what the best instructions to the cook were like for meals for 500. So we think that's right. A gust of wind is something that comes in a lot of the reports. Undoubtedly, before she sank, she came out of the fleet turned and because we found her heading back into Portsmouth Harbour. The question is again, why did she do that? When the flagship, which should have been leaving it, was at behind her, for her to have done that manoeuvre, she would have had to come round it. And that's something that the fleet orders at the time, you should not have done. So whether or not she was compromised before that, which could have been if she'd been hit by enemy shot and there'd been water within the ballast, which would have moved, and if it moved to one side, which we saw because there was almost a tidal line where the ballast ended up, that would push her over. Why was she doing that maneuver? Was it the fact that the captain wanted to show off? Perhaps unlikely. Was it the fact that he felt the ship was not operating properly and wanted to come out and turn and beach it on a sandbank, which often happens when you get into a position that you think you're going to sink. You try and aim for somewhere you can do it. But for that to have happened, the Marios would have had to come out of the main fleet and head for the sandbank. But you wouldn't do that without firing guns because you're that close. So whether the whole gun fire, when we found one gun on the starboard side, was in the process of being reloaded, the others were loaded. And what you do is once you're going out, you usually have a shot in the barrel anyway because it's oiled and it keeps the barrels good and you make sure that the ends of it have got tampions in it so it doesn't roll out. So the practice would be to reload quite quickly if you've been loading it. Some of the port side guns, the ones that were brought up in the 19th century, were reported as unloaded. We've got a couple that don't have shot and one that's being reloaded, suggesting that she went out, fired her starboard guns and turned and then was heading back. Now heading back to rejoin the fleet to fire again or heading back because she's heading for a sandbank because there was a problem. Those are unknowns. There's also the fact that within the historical archives in Hatfield House, a letter was found from Master Shipwright back to 
his majesty is writing to Henry VIII saying, sir, we don't want to put Culmain big guns in the front of the Mary Rose because at the moment she's got two iron guns in those positions, which are fairly big. In order to do that, so this is Henry wanting to put the heaviest of the bronze long range guns very high in the ship in the front. And the shipwrights are saying, you can't do that. If you do that, we'll have to take the foremast out, and that will be a real weakening to the bottom of the ship at that point. It's quite interesting. That's exactly the point where our structure gives way. And so the letter, we think, is spring 1545. Had that work been done, but we haven't found any guns because we've got that area of the ship, we did find one iron gun off the front of the bow. So whether that's one of the original ones or whether bronze guns were put in, we don't know. But that's, again, a possibility because that's exactly where our breakage and the end of our structure lies. But then in 2003 to 2005, when we were looking for the starboard side bow castle structure, we found the stem of the ship. So it's like the bottom of the keelson or the keel on the inside that comes up and forms the front shape of the ship. So we're missing the bow castle on the starboard side, but what we found is that timber had fallen towards the port side and taken a bit of the port side structure with it. That could have happened exactly at the space if the ship had been mucked about with and they put these guns there. That's the exact point of weakening. So did that happen as a result of that? Did she sink because the ship had been weakened by Henry having those big guns put in? And the two other vessels that are discussed at the same time, the shipwrights say, yeah, we can do those. And both of them were in Portsmouth Dockyard being worked on in September 1545. So had the mirrors been done earlier, could that have been one of the reasons for the sinking? We just don't know. An answer might be that if the outside of the port side structure that we found associated with the stem and reburied, if that outside is eroded, then it obviously took time for it to happen. So it didn't happen at the sinking. If it's absolutely clean, it either happened at the sinking or perhaps in the attempts to lift the ship afterwards. Maybe they ripped it out in their attempts, or maybe it was already compromised because of this. We don't know. So this is another reason why continually monitoring the, the site and looking for things that could look like it on sub-bottom profilers or on multi-beams as things like shapes of guns, or if they're bronze guns, it's difficult to pick up. If they're iron, you pick them up with the metal surveys. So that's another one reason why we're constantly getting sub-bottom profilers and multi-beam images of basically the geomorphology of the seabed to see whether we can see any patterns and look for those things and monitor the site. So it's quite complex. There's still so many questions, and maybe the truth is a bit of both of them. And the best eyewitness account says she went out, fired guns on one side of the ship, and sank on the side of the ship that she'd fired on. And that sort of appears to be what archaeologically we can see happen. The idea that all the guns from the port side fell towards the starboard side as the ship healed is not true because we only found one that had come over to that side. The other is clearly because we've got the carriages, a couple of them have been taken up in the Victorian or the salvage attempts in the 19th century. But the carriages, of a couple of them were in position, and the position they were in, it's obvious they were hanging on the ropes that were tying them to the side of the ship. And beside every gun port on the inside of the ship are big ring bolts for tying the guns back. So the guns didn't come over. We don't think there are too many men. Insubordination, you can't tell. One of the accounts says there are too many cooks spoiling the broth. There were too many officers. Each one of the men would be capable of being the captain, if you like. So the idea was perhaps they weren't obeying orders. We have nothing archaeologically we can see within that. But we can suggest she wasn't overmanned. She wasn't overgunned. The gun ports were in the right position. The lids were open. Something caused her to get into that position and the position is right with what the eyewitness account, as reported by the person reporting to Charles V, that's a pretty sensible account. And that's in ciphered text as part of a whole weeks of his visit here. So François van der Delft, the imperial ambassador, was more or less on the money. 
But as we've heard, the jury is still out on exactly why she sank. In my next podcast special on the Mary Rose, I'll be finding out about the experience of raising her and what we know now about conservation, DNA and human remains. Do join me. Thank you to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and researcher, Esther Arnott. And thank you to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. If you haven't already done so, do sign up to our weekly newsletter, Tudor Tuesday, so that you never miss out on the history you love. There are details in the notes below this podcast. And please rate this podcast wherever you listen, now including on Spotify, And please send me your comments and suggestions for future podcasts via our Twitter feed at NotJustTudors or by email NotJustTheTudors at HistoryHit.com. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.